Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. I think history repeats itself, but not in, 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 in the same way. Uh, well, it's funny, I feel as a kind of writer, you, you write these things, and what you say are in your books, and you don't really have anything more intelligent to say about social issues than, than, than anybody else, really, when you're, when you're being a, a civilian. But, I mean, there is a, a, a distressing authoritarian pushback uh, when you see things like the language of civil rights that I was brought up with being co-opted uh, as part of a kind of uh, an, an alt-rights narrative. That's the same thing happening, but it's happening in a, sort of in, in, in a different way. So I'd like to think that we escape these things, but there is something about the, the faithfulness of, of uh, the, the, our biblical characters here, that they, they may be right, things are preordained. I tend to find the, the meaning of a character, or help my way into a character, by finding a place for them. And Hooper, where I attach him to, was I was doing a play over in Atlanta, and uh, one of the actors took me for a walk up through the old, um, what they called the prison farm, which is essentially was it was a social control mechanism. But it was it was a it was a post uh, uh, liberation of, of slavery. But in actual fact, it was just another it was another labour camp, and that's where I had Hooper as coming from. And once I could have him coming from that, I I, I could sort of find my way to his character. Do we all have secrets, and what is the price of keeping them? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with Irish novelist, screenwriter and teacher Owen McNamee, whose latest book, The Vogue, has just been published by Faber and Faber, where one of Owen's characters pipes up. I told you then, and I'm telling you now, the whole lot should have been burned. Every deed, every police record, every scrap of paper on everything we ever did. Records are kept, records protect. Protect against who? Against people like us. Never mind the records, what about the body? So how and why do some secrets get taken to the grave? Hi, my name is Owen McNamee. Uh, I'm the author of, I think at this stage, seven novels, various films, um, feature films, TV, uh, children's books at some stage, thrillers and under a pseudonym. Um, my latest book published by Faber and Faber uh, is called Vogue and it's uh, three interlinked love stories from the 40s through to the early 2000s. Um, it begins with two two of the great, um, if you like, uh, opening gambits. One is a body is found and the second one is that a stranger comes to town. I'm going to read you just the, the, the opening page, if you like, where a body is found. Pernmill Aerodrome, Morn, 16th November 2000. The sand pit had been opened. A yellow excavator stood by the side of the pit, its bucket raised. Swags of unfurled bandage hung from the bucket tangs, filthy and dripping. An articulated scanner with a covered trailer was backed up to the broken ground at the edge, its hydraulic rams half extended. A fluorescent works light hung in jack chain from a corroded derrick. Three men rendered into silhouettes stood between the pit and the light. They stood without moving, their heads bent towards the opening at their feet, functionaries to the merciless night. The bottom of the pit was half filled with water, syringes, wound dressings ranked with old blood and human tissue, rusted scalpel blades and theatre gowns bundled and discarded, used drug vials and transfusion sacks floated in the water. A woman's skeletal remains clad in vile rags lay halfway up the pit wall, as though she had crawled from it. 
matter adhering to her hair and clothes, as though she had looked for mercy and found there none. Across the sandy frame to the north of the darkened aerodrome, chapel bells rang for the ascension. Really well done on the book, Own, and congratulations on it. I have to say it was a very engrossing read. I read it, um, read the first 200 pages in one straight sit, and I was quite captivated. I was brought into this very eerie, shady, uncomfortable environment. And uh, it really um, takes you in in terms of the narrative. You almost get into this spin in terms of some of the different characters and some of the questions that you pose. It's uncomfortable in parts, very thrilling in other parts, and deeply mysterious. So congratulations on that Thank one. Um, I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. Do you think all towns have secrets and within that some towns have much dirtier secrets than others? I think all towns have secrets and and, and most of them have dirty secrets but in a way the town that I create in this which is an amalgam of various towns by the time I grew up in Kilkeelan County Town but other bits of other towns but it's more for me it's it's the idea of a town being like a Borghese labyrinth every town has that and I'm getting more and more interested in the idea of overlaying meanings into places and, 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 and people and, and situations where it can mean one whole set of things, but it can mean an entirely different set of things. And this is only one version of that particular town. I've written other versions of it as well. So. Yeah. And then when you throw in a range of different blow-ins, if you will, that's when things get very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, well, what, what I find about this particular book is that most of the other books I've written have been based very much on factual events and they're, if you like, half-fact, half-fiction. Um, this one, I was asked to write for a soap opera, basically. Um, and there was a, a friend of mine asked me and said, you know, there's a bit of money in it. Um, it'll not take you very much time and, you know, have, have a go. And, you know, I mean, we have to make a living. So I thought, yeah, of course, um, I'll have a look at it. But I found when I started to, to, to do this, and I, I wasn't very good at it, um, the type of intense story structure, the manipulative story structure, where you have A story, B story, C story, D story, where you have to have hooks at particular points. Um, and basically, in, in a way, it's a, kind of a, it's a technique of writing for people who can't necessarily write. And the strange thing about it was that I found it, it made me respect the idea of story a lot more because there's something esoteric in the idea of story. There's something magical in it um, that you can't quite capture in that, for, in that formal technique, if you like. And everything I've done has been very controlled. And in this book, I've... I laid it open to mystery, if you like. I let parts of it write itself. I let the, the images kind of come to me. And the weird thing about it is, is that readers responded to it in a way better than to the books that I understood the structure to. So although I was kind of sort of finding my way through this this, this uh, labyrinth again, if you like, um, the readers found it found their way through it without any, any bother at all, which is, which is intriguing. Yeah. And you interweave three separate storylines that all merge into one, if you will, within a historical context. And what's possibly so interesting is that different readers will pick up on different nuances and different questions and the different um, grit between each of those storylines. And for some, it's going back to World War II. For some, it's closer to contemporary life. But within that, there is... um, a great sense of social judgment, of watching, of unease between the different time periods. Well, I suppose these things become analogous to the present, if you like, the idea of, of, of surveillance, which I was brought up with. I mean, I, I, you know, I clearly remember our phone at home was tapped in the early troubles when my father was a lawyer, and you could hear the click when you picked up the phone. And there's something about the kind of joining of that very modern concept of surveillance, which increased, of course, as the years went on, and, and now we're all subject to. And it's almost, I, I put it alongside this very almost Victorian concept of the phone, the black backlight phone in the hallway. And I'd be, phone calls would come in at night from people who, who, were, who needed a lawyer there and then, um, who were in trouble. 
And uh, I was allowed to sleep in the house. I get up in my pajamas and uh, kind of I'd, I'd answer the phone. You'd be talking to somebody crying down the phone, um, standing there on your bare feet, and I can still feel the the the, um, the coldness of the floor of the, of the wooden floor under my feet. So in in a way, you know, all these things and the sense of place is all wrapped up with that. And and I've gone back, having started off writing about this little town and this small area. Nearly everything I've done has has come out of that. I've gone right back to it and started to write about it again. So, Owen, for anyone who hasn't read The Vogue, I might get you to just um, sketch out the storyline for me briefly, please. Well, there are really three interlinked storylines. Um, one is a young GI who gets involved with a local girl and it all ends very, very badly for him. Uh, the second storyline is uh, a young man coming to the town, a stranger comes to town, and uh, he's investigating. It seems We don't really know what he's investigating at the start, but it turns out he's investigating his own past. And the third storyline is um, Lily and Margaret, uh, the two friends who who grow up, uh, who are in in a way their their lives are destroyed by what happens in nineteen forty four, uh, and we see them into the present and the action that they take. One of the interesting aspects of um, of the book is on the rule of law, whether how it's uh, I suppose enacted and interpreted in different types and environments. And um, you set one of the stories on um, a World War II airbase um, in County Down and uh, a military court or court martial. Um, can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, the airbase, there was seven miles of runway um, at, at Cranfield, just on, at the mouth of, of Carringford Lock, which is a part of our landscape of my growing up. And it, it, it's quite an eerie landscape still. It's, it's completely deserted. In actual fact, um, a lot of... Uh, it was used as a staging post for American soldiers for D-Day. So there were, there, I mean, there were tens of thousands of troops based there at, at, at one stage. You know, you know, Bob Hope came there, Glenn Miller came there, and there's a ghostly remnants of, 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 of these people there. And also the soldiers and the airmen, because, um, for instance, uh, I think it was the, the 8th Airborne were based there. They went off and fought in the, in the Battle of the Bulge and took 80% casualties, something like that. So, I mean, this was the last place they were before, before they, 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 they went out to the theatre of war. But also the house I was brought up in, I found out, only found out recently, a new American uh, airmen had been built there. I only found out recently it was actually the headquarters. Um, and there was a walk-in attic off my room, uh, off my bedroom. And the soldiers, the, air, the airmen had written their names and addresses on the rafters. And there was a pinned-up of Betty Grable on the back of the door. And there were like camel cigarette packets, these impossible exotic things. So I've always been haunted by, by these presences or absences. And how did you go about researching um, the particular um, idea of a court-martial situation in Northern Ireland? Well, there's a, there's a lot of, um, of material online. I mean, it's, it's quite easy you know, and to try and find, if you like, just the, the correct uh, procedure, if you like, but also the syntax. And what actually happened was that they, they were, first of all, arraigned in the north, but then they were taken to Shepton Mallet in England. And that's where the hangings were carried out. That's where the court-martial were carried out and... and, and, and uh, they were hanged in, in, in Shepton Mallet. And one of the things that started to intrigue me was that black servicemen and Hispanic servicemen were hanged out of all proportion to their numbers in the army, and particularly for sexual crime, for alleged sexual crimes, and quite often were scapegoated for things that had happened to a lot of people with perpetrators of. But you can see how um, an African-American serviceman could have been very visible in Northern Ireland at that time and that possibly within all the social prejudices and conservatives of either Catholic or Protestant Ireland that you could see how they could easily be targeted, couldn't you? And quite vulnerable, no matter what the context was. Oh, and anywhere, anywhere in this yeah. part of the world. Um, I mean, there were two black servicemen hanged uh, from the North. One, I think... I, I've never been able to actually find out the real details of it. A man called Wiley was hanged 
for the murder of a pimp called Harry Coogan in Belfast, uh, arguing over the price of a girl, um, and, 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 and why they apparently stabbed this guy. But there's something noir about that story that just kind of immediately drew me in. I think that was the original story which drew me into researching, if you like, the kind of the, the, the black the black servicemen. But you would have got loads of girls in County Down um, who would have been having different sexual relationships with servicemen at the time, or friendships, or whatever it was. The environment, I would imagine, would have been very fluid, was it? You, you wouldn't know. I mean, the town I grew up in is um, there, there. I don't know how many different small Protestant, in particular Protestant denominations there are. Um, there and and on all varying degrees of strictness and and, and adherence to biblical teaching, um, but what's interesting about the whole thing is that there's a silence about it. You don't. I knew I knew one woman who who was left at the altar by a GI, but whatever happened between them, um, I think the town erased it from its memory after the war. God, that's so interesting that the whole town would have. I suppose, co-conspirators, if you will. Would that have been an sense of shame or would there, how would you explain that? I'd, well, yes, I'm, yeah, shame and, and, and possibly e- easier to, to erase it than deal with. Yeah. In many ways, I mean, it, it, it just reflected the rest of society at, at, at the time. But presumably but there would have been um, several children born that possibly weren't documented. Would well, I mean, my, my, you know, my, my mother would never particularly talk about that time and she says that, which is very kind of uncharacteristic of her, you kind know, um, in, in the way she said it, she's talking about a, a friend of mine, a young friend of mine, and she said, oh, there'd be a touch of the yank in him. A touch of the yank was how it described it. So It's a brilliant turn of phrase, though, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Tell me, um, within the overall storyline, you and obviously you opened with a reading with a, a missing body. There's a lot of shades of Ireland's political history um, brought through the novel and within that some of the very uncomfortable murky aspects of division, political division and religious sectarianism in uh, the island of Ireland. I'm just wondering, were you very conscious when you're writing that, that some people could get a bit, I suppose, um, you know, take umbrage to the fact that you were, you know, using your own uh, creative imagination and, and writing what you will, so to speak. People have been taking umbrage at yeah. what I've written for many years. And actually, this one is, is, is in a way kind of less obvious. I mean, you can go back sort of, you know, 20 years to when the umbrage arrived in the form of death threats and things like that and, you know, kind of very hostile press coverage. So I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. In actual fact, um, sometimes you kind of, if, if I mean, this book has been very well received and I, I almost miss the kind of the smell of blood in the air. I almost miss the, miss the scrap <laughs> that people have, have, uh, haven't, haven't been having a go at it. Uh, but, you know, in a way, you're kind of burying what happened in, in, on that level in analogy. And uh, I, I, to explain something to it, one of the characters in the book is, is Kay, the librarian. Um, and she has a more interesting past than, 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 we, than, than we think. I read a book uh, called Into the Dark by John T. Brown, who was an RUC whistleblower. And in the middle of the book, in a sort of dark tale of, 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 of evildoing and, and, and collusion, he says, when I was small, um, my father was very violent and quite often myself and my brother would be sent off for a weekend's respite. He said, we were sent to a big house, um, which was a children's home. And he said, the two boys loved it. They were running in the woods and everything, you know, having, having a wonderful time. And then they were called into the hallway and there was a broken pot in the hallway, a broken flower pot, and sort of noises of kind of dispute coming from, from the cellar. And they were sent out to the woods to gather nettles. And when they got back in, uh, to, to, and they were brought back in down to the cellar and two of the staff were holding a girl down in a bath as he described it and they were whipping her with nettles or whipping her bare back with nettles 